Our Old Testament reading is Psalm 10. So let's turn there. Psalm 10. This is God's holy, perfect word. So let's give it our full attention now. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide in times of trouble? The wicked in his pride persecutes the poor. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. For the wicked boasts of his heart's desire. He blesses the greedy and renounces the Lord. The wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. His ways are always prospering. Your judgments are far above, out of his sight. As for all his enemies, he sneers at them. He has said in his heart, I shall not be moved. I shall never be in adversity. His mouth is full of cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is trouble and iniquity. He sits in the lurking places of the villages. In the secret places, he murders the innocent. His eyes are secretly fixed on the helpless. He he lies in wait secretly as a lion in his den. He lies in wait to catch the poor. He catches the poor when he draws him into his net. So he crouches. He lies low that the helpless may fall by his strength. He has said in his heart, God has forgotten. He hides his face. He will never see. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the humble. Why do the wicked renounce God? He has said in his heart, you will not require an account. But you have seen, for you observe trouble and grief to repay it by your hand. The helpless commits himself to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and the evil man. Seek out his wickedness until you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations have perished out of his land. Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will prepare their heart. You will cause your ear to hear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed that the man of the earth may oppress no more. And our New Testament reading is Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 through 33. Matthew 10, verses 16 through 33. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father who speaks in you. Now, brother will deliver up brother to death. And a father his child and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For assuredly, I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. 
A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray now and ask him to bless it to us. Lord, your word is sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit. Your word is like a hammer which comes and breaks our pride in pieces. We pray that you would come and wield your word in our hearts to, yes, convict us of our sin and break down our unbelief and self-sufficiency and pride. And then, Lord, to bring healing in Christ and to build us back up, made new again in Christ. So speak, O Lord, and accomplish your good purpose for your word in our hearts. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Last Sunday morning, we saw Jesus command that we join him in his proclamation of his kingdom. We saw that he was telling his disciples, the 12 disciples there in Matthew chapter 10, to go out and proclaim the kingdom to the lost sheep of Israel. And we saw that not all his commands carry over one-to-one to us today um, because of the point in redemptive history where we're living. There's a whole lot there in that that is also applicable to us, that we're called to proclaim the gospel, that we're called to make our mission his mission. Right, to say Jesus, his mission is to proclaim his kingdom. And that's what he's called his church to do also. That's what he's called me to do also in, in, in all kinds of ways. Where we, we saw that we are to pray. The harvest is plentiful, right? Pray that the Lord would send out laborers. Preach, proclaim, bear witness to him. Give and support those who go. And also go yourself into the places that you can and spread his gospel. So that's what Jesus has been teaching his disciples and us. Go proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. Join me in this mission of gospel preaching. And now he's also then in this next section, he's shaping our expectations about what it's going to look like when we do join him in this mission. Um, what's going to happen to us? What can we expect? What, what are we signing up for when we do say, all right, Jesus, you've called me to go join you in this mission of proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. What can I expect 
when I do that. You can imagine the disciples would have been expecting this is going to be pretty. This is going to be pretty cool. Um, we're going to go heal lepers, right? We've seen Jesus do this with a word, with a touch. He's healing lepers. He even raised a dead girl back to life. And he's saying, now disciples, you go do this. Go heal. Go raise the dead. Go cast out demons and proclaim the kingdom. The harvest is plentiful, right? So the disciples might have been thinking, this is going to be great. We're going to go out and the towns of Israel are going to flock to see us. And we're going to be we're going to be healing and and people are going to be welcoming us with open arms. It's going to be just wonderful. The harvest is plentiful, Jesus. You just said that. So we're expecting a great success here. But then Jesus words burst that balloon, don't they? He tells us that if you're going to be his messenger, yes, it's a glorious thing. It's a wonderful thing to be his messenger, an ambassador for his kingdom. But it's going to mean persecution, too. It's going to mean suffering, too. All kinds of suffering. If you're going to obey His command to bear witness to Him, you are going to suffer. He promises us that. He doesn't hold back here at all about the potential cost of being an ambassador for His kingdom. And as you read it, you might start to think, well, uh, maybe I don't want in. (laughs) This is a high cost. Right? Jesus is saying all these things about persecution and suffering, and he says, everyone's going to hate you if you do this. Why would we want that? It's a fear-inducing message that he's giving us here. But even as he gives us these expectations and says, here's what you can expect. The same way they're treating me, they're going to treat you. It's going to be costly. He also over and over says, no, don't worry. Don't fear. He's doing two things. He's showing us what it's going to cost But he's also, even more than that, showing us all the comfort that there is for us when we're on that mission. Yes, it's a costly mission to be a representative for his kingdom. But there is more comfort in it than there is cost. There's more grace in it than there is grief for those who follow him. So that's that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at those two aspects of Jesus' words here. We're going to look at the cost. What Jesus says about the cost of being a messenger for his kingdom. And then second, we're going to look at the comfort that comes to us when we are messengers for his kingdom. Let's start with the cost. What will it cost you to do this? To obey Christ and his command to represent him and speak his gospel. Usually, if there's a cost to something, we like it in the fine print. right? You read it really fast at the end of the advertisement so no one knows the side effects. Uh, But Jesus doesn't do that. He puts it in bold print, nice and clear, spells it out for us that this mission is going to be expensive. He starts with an illustration. Picture a flock, uh, excuse me, picture picture a bunch of wolves. Get that picture in your head, a bunch of angry, starving wolves. And now, add to that picture a sheep in the middle. Now hit play. What's happening? You can stop. You can shut it off now. We don't want to see what's happening, right? What, what, what happens is that the, the wolves, are going to, they're going to eat that sheep right up. They're going to tear it apart. You don't want to be the sheep in that scenario, do you? Jesus says, here's what you can expect. You're going out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Verse 16. There are sheep, there are wolves, and you are one of the sheep. Um, he says, you're going to be put on trial by your fellow Jews. You're going to be whipped in the synagogues, in the very places you should be welcomed, in the place where God's people gather, in the synagogue, there you're going to be persecuted and, and rejected. 
We see this come true, right, in the early church. We see Jesus' words coming true as Peter and John, right? They, they're, 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 uh, they're, they're, they're put on trial by, by their Jewish brothers and sisters. They're, they're whipped for their testimony to Jesus. Jesus says, not only is this going to be something that happens to you from the Jewish people, it's also going to be something that happens from the nations. The kings of the nations, you're going to be put on trial before them. The Apostle Paul, we see this in him as he is put on trial before the Roman emperor. And eventually, as tradition has it, he's beheaded for his witness to Christ before the emperor. So expect the authorities, Jesus is saying. Jewish, Gentile, all of them to treat you with suspicion, treat you with doubt, even be violent against you. Don't expect a fair hearing. You can expect persecution from the authorities. And not just from them, he also says from family and friends. Verses 21 to 22, he says this, Brother will deliver up brother to death, and the father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. The picture that comes to my mind here is Stephen in Acts chapter 7. As his brothers, his fellow Jews, hear what he's saying about Christ and reject him and uh, they stone him until he dies. I think of the Christians in Thessalonica as they are uh, cut off from their, 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 their culture, their society, and their families. They're, 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 uh, they're, they're disowned by their families uh, for, for, for claiming Christ. This is exactly what Christ is promising here, that being his messenger could cost you the relationships that are dearest and most precious to you. Being his messenger can cost you your good standing in society, could cost you your job, could cost you your social standing, could cost you a sense of belonging and safety and security, could cost you your very life. And all of this is what it cost Jesus, right? The Jewish authorities would not rest until he was crucified. The religious leaders who should have been the first to recognize him as Christ, worship him as Christ are the first in line to hate him and reject him and kill him. He's put on trial for a Gentile, for Pontius Pilate. He is uh, betrayed by his disciples. He's, he's uh, rejected by his own people. He's accused of being possessed by a demon rather than being filled with the Holy Spirit. He's accused of being this uh, Beelzebub, the text says. He's rejected. And Jesus is saying that if he's our master, if we're following him and we say, well, his mission's my mission, his kingdom is what I'm going to serve and proclaim, then he's saying we should expect the same thing, right? And that if that's how they treated Christ, that's how they're going to treat us as well. That if that's how they treated the king, that's how they're going to treat the king's messengers. We're not greater than him. Uh, we don't get a pass on this, right? We are uh, we're, we're, we're living in his footsteps, walking in his footsteps. We shouldn't expect a life that's easier and more comfortable than his was. If our message is the same message he proclaimed, the response to his message should be the same response that we are getting as well. Now, Christians in our culture, we have enjoyed a comfortable place for quite a while. But it's starting to change. It's, it's been changing for a while, uh, and it, but it's, it's continuing to change ever more rapidly, it seems. It seems like Christianity, our faith, and our practice is becoming less and less tolerable in our culture. And if we believe these things that we say we believe, the Bible teaches about the existence of hell, the wrath of God, the sinfulness of the human heart, 
what a man and a woman is according to the Bible, what marriage is according to the Bible. Right? If we believe these things and hold on to these things, then the culture is only going to turn more and more against us. Uh, it's not really a matter of, 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 uh, uh, of uh, um, uh, if or when, but, but how much this is going to happen. Uh, the Bible promises us this will happen and we can see it happening around us and we can see it, that it's going to happen more. So how will we respond? Jesus says, either you endure and are saved or you accommodate the world, you give up the good fight of the faith and you're not saved. He says that you must endure to the end to be saved. Um, If you quit, the persecution will probably stop, but you will no longer be in Christ's kingdom. You've got to endure. You've got to endure. That's what Jesus' command is here for us. He says those who endure to the end will be saved. The, uh, the Christian life is a test of endurance. Um, Jesus makes that clear here, that, that if we're going to walk in obedience to him, if we're going to be an ambassador, it's going to be strenuous, it's going to be hard, it's going to be exhausting. Um, this is not the easy road. We're taking the same road he took, and we're going to face the same opposition that he received. And uh, we, we, have, we have so much set against us in the Christian life. The world, the flesh, the devil, all set against us. And this is why the Apostle Paul compares the Christian life to a long-distance race. It's long. It's hard. It's tiring. He compares it to a wrestling match or a boxing match or a, a war. We must endure. If we turn back and quit, we will lose our place in his kingdom. Hebrews 10, 38-39 says, My righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. If you shrink back, right, if you turn away from following Christ, it's too much, it's too expensive, then the word of warning is, my soul has no pleasure in you. We must persevere, brothers and sisters. We must endure suffering, as Paul says. Endure suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. That's what we're called to. That's the cost that we we are seeing here. Are you ready for that? And if we're not enduring the persecution now, but we know that the Word of God says it is going to come in in some form or other, then are you getting ready for that? If you know you have a long race coming up, if you're training for a, a marathon, you can't say, well, I'll start training a week before the race when I see that it's, you know, it's getting close to time. No, we, we know the trials are coming. We need to start training. Right? Endurance takes training. If we're going to endure, we need to be at work now, preparing for that and then at getting God's Word down into our hearts, learning to trust in His grace and rely on His grace, uh, rooting sin out of our lives, the sin that clings so closely, equipping our hearts with the great promises of Scripture. We need to set ourselves to do this, brothers and sisters, so that when persecution comes, we can endure. That's the cost, and that's what's required of us. Endurance in the face of persecution. Jesus is, is, is calling us to this, and it's a hard and costly thing. And it leads us to say, well, um, how am I going to endure this? Uh, What's, what's the hope? What's the comfort for me? How, how can I manage to persevere and endure as you're calling me to and commanding me to? 
And that's where we turn now in our second heading as we see Jesus' words of comfort here. The comfort. Uh, The words of comfort that Jesus gives in this passage far outstrip the words of cost. Uh, there, 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 there's cost, yes, and there's persecution here, but, but uh, just as certain and even more abundant is the promise of His grace to His people. And that's what we're going to look at now. Uh, there, are, there are eight things here, eight reasons we should not turn back, but should endure. Uh, eight, eight, eight things that encourage us that Jesus draws out for us here. The first is this, in verses 19 to 20, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will speak through you. Jesus tells us that if we're bearing witness to him as his disciples um, and, and we're, 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 we're uh, put on trial before, uh, before people and asked to give a testimony to him, that we will have the Holy Spirit's help to bear testimony to him. So he's promising his disciples specifically that as they go out and they're put on trial before kings and emperors for his sake, the Spirit himself will give them the words to say. We see this, right? Paul goes before Agrippa in the book of Acts. He's expected uh, to give a testimony to him, and he does. He gives a faithful testimony because the Holy Spirit strengthens him to do it. And Jesus is telling his disciples, don't worry what you're going to say, how you're going to say it, where you're going to find the courage to speak in the face of cost. Trust in my spirit to give you the words to say. Does this mean we shouldn't study and prepare for what we should say? Um, that the disciples weren't to listen carefully to Jesus' message and, and carefully, right, diligently understand his word so they could repeat it carefully and accurately? No, of course not. Jesus isn't saying that you shouldn't study the word and be prepared for what you should speak. In fact, he goes to great lengths to teach his disciples what they are to say and to then give his spirit so they remember every word he said so they can, they can get it right. We see Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Timothy, you need to study the Scriptures to be ready to speak. Peter, right, in 1 Peter 3.15, he says, Be prepared to make a defense. Be ready with words. But what is Jesus saying then? He's saying, don't worry as you present the gospel that it's all up to you. We, we get fearful when we speak the gospel. What if I say something wrong? Uh, what if, what if, I, what if I, I don't give a good testimony to Jesus? But Jesus is saying that it's not depending on you and your witness, right? Uh, he's calling us to speak his word, proclaim his kingdom. And he's saying it's the Holy Spirit who speaks through you who makes the word effective. It's not your word that makes dead hearts come alive. It's the Spirit of Christ speaking through you who makes sinners come to faith in Jesus Christ. So yes, he calls us faithfully proclaim this gospel of the kingdom, but don't live as though it's all depending on you. Depend on the Holy Spirit. It's his power, his work. It's his word that will accomplish his purpose of bringing sinners to faith. The second promise of comfort and encouragement that he gives us is in verse 22. Verse 22, he says there, the one who endures to the end will be saved. So he's commanding us to endure, but he's also promising us that if we do endure, we'll be saved. There's a promise there. Isn't there embedded in that? Some other religions teach that 
doesn't really matter what you do, how much you do, how much you obey, how much you sacrifice. It's still just arbitrary if you'll be saved or not. It's just up to the will of, of the gods. But that's not what we have in Christ. Right? We have a promise that we will be saved. Right? That's such a precious thought. That, that if we do persevere, right, we will one day enter our heavenly rest and enter the joy of, of our Master. Um, that, that, that God has promised this. This seems simple and straightforward, doesn't it? But it's easy to lose sight of. You will be saved. He will fulfill the promise He's made to you and save you. Save you from all the suffering and all the persecution and all the cost. Third comfort. The Son of Man will come soon. Verse 23. The Son of Man will come soon. Verse 23 is a hard verse. It says, When they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For assuredly I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. What does Jesus mean? Does he mean that the disciples won't get through this preaching circuit that they're sent on uh, in, in Israel, in Galilee, before Jesus comes in judgment and final salvation? Brings about the final day of judgment? Kind of sounds like that's what he means, but he doesn't do that, so that can't be what he's meaning here. Uh, he doesn't come in judgment before the disciples finish their preaching circuit that he sends them on. What's going on here? What, what is Jesus saying? I think he's referring to um, not the final judgment, but I think he's referring to a, a, a type of that judgment that's coming. You can think of the end times as happening in stages, right? The Son of Man coming, Jesus promised here, the Son of Man will come, happens in stages, right? You could say it happened when Jesus was born. The Messiah came. Son of, Man, Son of Man came when Jesus was incarnate and born of the Virgin Mary. You could also say the Son of Man comes when he's raised up in power, when he's raised from the dead on the third day. He's raised up in power. He's, he's uh, given that resurrection body. And then he ascends into heaven. He sits at the right hand of God. The Son of Man has come in his glorious power. He pours out his spirit on his church. Maybe that's what Jesus is referring to. But because of the note of judgment here, I think we have to say that there is another aspect to this. And that's the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, which was an act of God's judgment on Israel. And I think Jesus is saying to his disciples, this coming is going to happen in stages, but, but one of those stages is coming very soon, just, just a couple decades away. You won't have finished evangelizing Israel before that comes. So get busy with it. Be urgent in it. What's the encouragement for us in that? That's already happened. But what's the encouragement for us? Jesus is saying, um, I'm coming soon. And there's, in fact, more urgency even for us. Um, every other stage of the Son of Man's coming has happened. He was born. He was raised. Risen in glory in heaven. Poured out His Spirit. Jerusalem fell, eighty seventy. There's only one more judgment to come. Right? There's only one more coming of the Son of Man. And it's going to be soon. He promises that, that it will be, uh, it will be soon. And so we have this great urgency, this fire lit under us. The judgment of Christ will be poured out. And it's going to be coming soon. And it's an encouragement because 
uh, it's a reminder that in the midst of the cost, the suffering, and the endurance that's going on, it's, not, it's an encouragement to us that it's not going to just go on and on and on. He's going to cut the days short for the sake of His people. Um, we are not suffering endlessly for Christ. It's, it's a short, it's a light momentary affliction, Paul says. Um, Christ is coming soon. So be encouraged. If you're suffering persecution, be encouraged. It's not going to last forever. Christ will return soon and bring His salvation to you. The fourth encouragement Christ gives us is that the fullness of the Gospel is going to be revealed to the world through you. The fullness of the Gospel will be revealed to the world through you. Verses 26 to 27. Uh, Jesus is speaking here about how we are not to fear those who persecute us. And he says, because the things that are hidden now are going to be revealed. They're about to be revealed. The things I'm speaking in your ear, you're going to preach from the housetops. What's his point here? I think he's saying that um, his ministry has been a ministry of parables, of signs, right? Of a, uh, the, 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 the mystery of the gospel, which has been there in the Old Testament all along up until now. Is, is now starting to dawn in Christ. Right? You can think of the Old Testament picture, picture like um, nighttime. Right? There's moonlight. There's starlight. Um, you can see some things. But it's a little bit dark. You can't see it all with great clarity. Jesus comes. It's like the sun starts to rise. Right? More light's coming. But then when Jesus dies and rises again and pours out His Spirit, then it's the high noonday sun. Brilliant clarity. And that's the point at which the disciples go out and preach the gospel. In all its fullness, all its glory, all its clarity, right? every mystery of God's saving purpose revealed to the world in Christ Jesus, made obvious and manifest to the world. And Jesus is saying, that is a high privilege. Don't fear opposition. This is the gospel that the prophets of old were just seeing in shadowy visions and prophesying about that Moses got glimpses of. You've got the full vision of it. This is, the, this is the great mystery that the angels long to peer into. And it's been given to you, entrusted to you. Go preach it boldly. You are preaching the glories of Christ. We have been given the glorious gospel of Christ and His kingdom. God has pulled back the curtain and revealed Christ in all his glory. And he says, now I'm giving this message to you. Go preach Christ. It's a high, high privilege and we should not fear any cost to proclaim such a gospel. The fifth encouragement, fear the Lord. Don't fear man. Verse 28. Why don't we share the gospel with people? Probably, usually, because we're scared. Afraid of what they're going to think of us. If I talk about this, they're going to laugh about me behind my back. They're going to gossip about me. They're going to make fun of me. They'll think I'm weird. They'll think I'm stupid. That I'm, not, I'm, that I'm anti-science. Uh, that, that, um, that I'm a bigot. Could cost me my friends. Could cost me work opportunities. Uh, could cost me um, uh, social credibility. Jesus acknowledges all that. He's already acknowledged it. He's already told us, yes, it is going to cost you all those things. 
Don't fear man, though, he says. What is the worst thing a person can do to you? Well, they can do some pretty awful things. Jesus acknowledges that. They can even kill you. Harm your body. Take your life. Jesus says, yes, they can. But there's something a lot worse. We shouldn't fear people because the worst they can do is only kill you. You should fear the Lord because He can do much more. D.A. Carson puts it well. He says, the worst men can do does not match the worst God can do. If God is for you, it doesn't matter who's against you. If God is against you, it doesn't matter who's for you. All right, so who, who, whom are you going to live for? Whom are you going to live in awe of and respect of and obedience to? The desires and opinions of your peers who are powerless to do eternal harm to you or eternal good for you? Or are you going to live for the smile of your heavenly Father who holds your eternal destiny in His hand? That's Jesus' point. He is the one who will either send you to heaven or send you to hell. Don't fear man. There's a great warning in this. There's also a great encouragement in this. That if we, if we fear the Lord, then we will be free from the fear of man. Just free from that burden of trying to please others or trying to impress others or, 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 or to get their approval of us. If our hearts are full of the fear of the Lord, we will be freed from all other fears. You fear Him, there's nothing else you have to be afraid of. So fear the Lord, Jesus says. Fear, fear the Lord, don't fear man. The next encouragement He gives us, number 6, verses 29 to 30, He reminds us that our Father is sovereign. It's wonderful. He turns from saying, fear the Lord. He can send you to hell. Obey Him. Don't pay attention to what man wants. Fear Him. And then He says... Your Father in heaven is sovereign. He talks about how the Lord is our Father. He talks about how the Lord is the one who cares for all of His creation, that even the birds, even the smallest of the birds, a little sparrow, not a single sparrow falls to the ground, and the Lord doesn't take notice. He, he sees the smallest details of God's creation. They're all under His control. They're all under His care. They're all under His, His, His fatherly provision. And then surely, then, the sufferings that we go through, he notices those too. This is where the encouragement comes in. All the costs, all the persecution we talked about earlier, the, the Father is, is sovereign over that, and he's aware of all of it. He's numbered the very hairs of your head. He knows every single one. He knows every word of gossip that's spoken about you for being a Christian. Every, uh, every, every moment that someone uh, uh, looks down on you for your faith in Christ, He sees it. He knows it. He ordained it. All of it. Every moment of suffering is under His fatherly, sovereign care. He is a gracious Father and a wise Father and a loving Father. And everything in my life can be traced back to Him in His wisdom, power, goodness, and love as my Father who knows me. Jesus builds on this with the next word of comfort and encouragement He gives. The seventh word of encouragement in verse 31. Your Father values you, He says. Your Father values you. 
Not only does He know us, but He loves us. Verse 31, He says, Do not fear, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So Jesus thrusts us into the presence of God in His holiness and His power, and He says, Fear Him. But also trust His care and His knowledge of you and His sovereignty over you and His love for you. Brothers and sisters, do you know that God values you and loves you? Now, I cringe when I hear pop theology talk about how Jesus died because I was worth so much. Right? Because I'm a sinner. I'm a worthless sinner. And He doesn't value me because of me. I'm a sinner. And yet, at the same time, in our unworthiness, He values us and loves us. How much? How much does the Father value you? Jesus says that two sparrows were sold for a single copper coin. A couple bucks. That's what the value of a sparrow is. You can buy them at the dollar store. What was the price Jesus paid for us? What was the price the Father paid for us? What's the value? What's the cost? Right, not what were you worth, but how much did He love you? He paid the blood of Christ for you. It's the most expensive thing there is, isn't it? Right, the most valuable thing there is that He gave for you. That's how deep the Father's love for us is. He gave His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. That's the measure of His love. It's not your circumstances that tell you how much He loves you. It's not the persecution you go through and endure that tells you how much He loves you. It's Christ. And what the Father gave you in Christ. This is such a wonderful encouragement as we go through persecution and suffering for the sake of Christ and His Gospel. I'm going through this, but I know it's because the Father loves me. It's not a sign He doesn't love me. It's a sign I am His child. I'm enduring discipline because I am His Son. And He loves me. He values me more than, more than anything else. He loves me and values me because of His grace. And then the final encouragement, verses 32 to 33. Christ will confess you before His Father. Christ will confess you before His Father. This is the final encouragement Jesus gives here in this section uh, for why we should endure suffering for the sake of the Gospel. He says that if you endure and if you confess Him before men, He'll confess you before His Father in heaven. And on the flip side, if you deny Him before men, He'll deny you before His Father in heaven. Are you going to tell people that you believe in Jesus Christ? Well, if you are, if you do that, Jesus is going to say to his father, did you hear what he said? Right? That one's mine. He confessed me. That one's mine. He's going to confess him before our father in heaven. That's a wonderful thought, isn't it? We're facing temptation, right? You're in a situation and you don't want to share the gospel because you're fearful of what someone's going to say or what they might think. If I speak, profess Christ before men, share the gospel, Jesus is going to profess me before his father? Own me before His Father in heaven. That's a wonderful thought. When you stand up to other kids at school who are being 
uh, mean or bullies and you're telling them about Jesus Christ, uh, then the Lord Jesus is watching you. He's noticing, paying attention. The world might laugh, but Jesus is not. He's saying, look, this child of mine held fast to the faith and made a good profession. If you deny him, he says, he'll tell his father that too. And his eyes are on us. Um, if, if, uh, if, we confess, uh, if we confess him, he will profess us. If we deny him, he'll deny us. What if we don't, though? Right? What, what about all those times we haven't? Because right? we've all been there, those times when we should have spoken, should have made a good profession of our faith in Christ, but we didn't. What's our hope? There's a wonderful example of this right in Scripture for us, which gives us great hope. Think of the Apostle Peter. Right? He's one of the disciples here, one of the twelve, listening to Jesus say, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father who is in heaven. It's not going to be too long, right, uh, before Jesus is on trial. Peter's there outside in the courtyard, and a little servant girl is going to come up, and Peter is going to be more scared of that servant girl's opinion than he is of God Almighty. And he's going to forget Jesus' words here. And he's going to deny Christ. And he's going to do it again. And then he's going to do it again. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't a slip of the tongue. He did it three times. And then he started swearing as he did it. Taking an oath. Cursing as he did it. I never knew him. I don't know who this is. Nothing to do with Jesus. But then, of course, after Jesus dies and then rises from the dead, he comes to Peter and he restores him. Right? He, he brings him back to himself. He says, Peter, do you love me? And then he reminds Peter of his love for him, and he gives Peter more grace. Peter, I know you denied me, but I, I, I love you, and I'm gracious towards you, and I died for your sins. There's forgiveness for your denial of Christ. But grace doesn't stop there. The grace of God to Peter forgave him for his sin of denying Christ. But it did more, didn't it? It changed him. He didn't do that again. He was filled with the Spirit of Christ. No more was he scared and terrified to speak of the suffering Savior. Now he's out preaching. He's getting whipped for it. He's going to be crucified someday for it. But he's preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what the grace of God does in him. Forgave him for his sin of denying Christ and not enduring to the end. And then changed him so that he would persevere in faithfulness. So, brothers and sisters, endure. Endure suffering for the sake of the gospel. The cost is high to join Christ on his mission of sharing the gospel with others. But embrace it. Because there's rich, rich comfort here. We are to do this most of all, right, with our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. Right? He endured for our sakes. He endured to the end faithfully for us. He didn't fold under persecution. He kept the faith all the way to the end. And now he says, I will give you grace to do that also. Trust in me. Keep, keep your eyes on him. And all the suffering, all the persecution, all the costs, keep your eyes on him, fixed on him. This is what the author to the Hebrews uh, emphasizes so much over and over. Hebrews is a letter written to suffering Christians, telling them, don't give up the faith. It's worth it. Jesus is more than worth it. And in chapter 12, Verses 1 to 2, he says, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, 
who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray. Oh, our God, thank you for your gospel. Thank you for our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that we would run with endurance the race set before us, even as he ran the race set before him. Let us, Lord, run in union with him and for his sake, and may the glory all go to him. Bring comfort, Lord, to all our hearts. Bring encouragement to us and strength for the race ahead of us. We pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.